Welcome to the Larry Arn Show on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. I'm Larry Arn. Today my guest is writer and novelist Chigozi Obiyama, and it's going to be fun. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E, hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. So I'll introduce you to our audience. I learned of Chigozi Obiyama from Dutton Carney, who teaches English here at the college. We have a whacking big, great English department. And once in a while, Dutton comes to see me, and he's always got something to teach me. And this episode was, you have to know about Chigozi Obiyama. And I said, what is that? And he says he's a Nigerian writer and one of the greatest novelists in the world. He's been a finalist twice for the Booker Prize, which is a big deal, and his novels are very powerful. And he said, I want to get him here, and I want you to help me. And so he did, and I did. And then he got here, and I met him. And so now he has to come all the time. <laughs> He's a colleague. And I think you're going to enjoy him and learn, as I will do, I hope. Chigozi, you come from Nigeria, and you're a member of the Igbo tribe. Tell us about that. Well, again, it's a pleasure to be back. The last time I was here, it was all empty, and it was just the deers and the coyotes. Mm -hmm. But everyone seems to be here uh, at this time. Uh, yeah, so I'm from Nigeria, from the eastern part of the country. It's an interesting thing to, you know, I, I don't speak very much about tribes or anything like that, but my part of the country is actually very large enough to constitute a country of its own. But, you know, the, the, the funny thing about African, modern African countries is that they are often a collage, if you could say a montage of different principalities. So if you, if you think of the Igbo people who occupy the east of Nigeria, they are about 45 to 50 million in, in population. That's the population of all of the Scandinavian countries put together and some. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, that's where I'm from. But I, I grew up in, uh, in the west of the country. So right now, I think Nigeria is about 200 million people and projected to grow exponentially, of course. So, but I grew up in the West and for a very long time, actually, I couldn't speak uh, Igbo. You know, I, I spoke Yoruba and English, of course, which, which are the, Yoruba is the language speaking the, spoken in the West and English is the, you know, national language of Nigeria because uh, it's a product of British colonialism. So 
but but at a certain period in our life with my siblings, my dad became very frustrated. He said, okay, I'm raising these children in the West, but they're from this part of the country. They have to also embody this identity. So he banned the speaking of Yoruba language in the house. <laughs> I mean, so you couldn't speak it. So we were forced to learn our language, which I like to say that I speak well now. And it's relevant that you come from this tribe because your second novel, which is the one I know best, it's called An Orchestra of Minorities, and it's very powerful. I mentioned, mentioned that to our listeners because I urge you to read it, although you might cry at the end. The narrator is a figure in Igbo, you say Igbo, cosmology. Explain that. The American spelling is I-B-O, Igbo, but, but it's Igbo. Yeah. Um, so I uh, went to grad school at the University of Michigan in Enabo, and it was, uh, I remember very vividly, I took a class with uh, a professor called uh, Linda Gregerson. Actually, she's been here before. Uh, she was the one who recommended me to to Dutton, yes, yeah. Dutton. And, and it was on Milton, and I think Danche. And I, you know, I, of course I knew about Paradise Lost, but I had never read it. It was a tome, of course, so always, you know, I would just put it away. But I was forced to read Paradise Lost, and it was, it was a, re a revolutionary act in some ways because, uh, you know, I thought I had a mastery, at least, from, from being a nerd as a kid haven't read widely, but I hadn't read anything like it. And I thought to myself, if you look at all the entities, ethnic groups across Africa, especially in Nigeria, which is the largest country in, the, in, in Africa, we have a lot of cosmologies. Some of them are, I've you know, studied some of them. They are actually very sophisticated in their belief system. And the Igbo one is one of such. And, but there's no fiction, there's no literature that has, you know, in some ways, instantiated these cosmologies. And I was like, you know what? I want to do something like this. Because Paradise Lost is really a cosmological novel, I mean, poem, not a novel, about Judeo-Christian cosmology, the idea of, of, of the first man and the fall of man, really. And of course, Satan is, is a, a very eloquent character in the, for some reason, Milton makes him probably the most eloquent in, in the poem. And, 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 and so I started to search uh, and, and I looked at the, the cosmology of the Igbo people, the, the Igbo religion, which uh, only my grandfather and my, my dad, my mom's side had practiced. Every other person had converted to Christianity, you know, before I was even born. So I, I began to do some research and I discovered that the Chi was a very fascinating figure because it is believed to be a kind of locus of being, you know, the, the very central. And, and, and in fact, the Igbos believe that birth and coming into existence is futile until an ancestor has decided to come back to life. So, so we believe in reincarnation, basically, is what it means. So, uh, you know, growing up, I was, uh, I was often called my uncle, my, 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 dad, my mom's uncle. So, so the, that's because the ancestor came back in form of a chi. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm going to write about that. I'm going to investigate more 
and see what I can do with it. And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more daunting the, the enterprise seemed until I went to Cyprus for school, you know, the, 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 the north of, of Cyprus. And I witnessed firsthand a guy like Chinonso in the novel. So there was this long story short thing that Nigerians were doing, a kind of a, a Ponzi scheme where you have fake agents who contrive to deceive people. Come to Cyprus. This is like America or somewhere in Western Europe. And, and so gullible people pay money and they come to school there, not knowing that this is like, you know, actually a pariah nation. So Cyprus is divided into two. The Turkish side, which is recognized only by Turkey, and the Greek side, which is in the European nation, that is a real country. I was on the Turkish side, the fake Cyprus. Uh, so this is where people were coming to. And so this guy was deceived. He came there, and on realizing that he'd made this big mistake, he took his own life. So he went, he drank. Unintentionally, I have to say, uh, he, he drank very heavily, ascended the, the actic of a, you know, a four-story building or something like that. And I assume he was trying to walk back, you know, retrace his step, uh, but he actually walked over the building and died. So, you know, we were looking for him, all the African students, and we found his body a couple of days later when it had begun to stink. And in retrospect, you know, when stuff like that happens, your mind becomes alive as a writer. So I, I remember uh, one thing he had mentioned to me in passing, which was that he had come to Cyprus because he wanted to make money very quickly and go back to this woman he was in love with. And the story just came uh, from there. Mm. Well, I'm not going to... I urge everybody to read this book. And it'll move you and elevate you and crush you, probably. Did me. So Milton's Paradise Lost is revolutionary and beautiful. And it uses the device of placing Satan in the, series of, uh, in the uh, center of the story. One of my great professors taught Aristotle and Abraham Lincoln, people like that. But, um, and they're kind of related, those people. But he had an undergraduate degree in literature. And he loved Shakespeare. And he loved Milton. And once he got me uh, to read aloud in class a description of one of Satan's strongest lieutenants. <laughs> and it's a tremendous description of a person of honor and strength. And he said, see the power of that and think of the context. Well, you've done a reversal like that. Yeah, It's different because the chi is not evil, but it means that you can, I mean, I, I think it's a masterpiece. You can, you have somebody who stands outside and within the leading character. And you see him in richer dimensions because of that. It's a major achievement. Good for you. I can say something to, to that, actually, because, you know, I, I, that, that is, you get to the heart of what I was trying to do. But also, you know, very early on in, in my career, I had this weird thought about the novel. I write primarily the novel. I believe, and you know, I could be wrong or I could be biased, but I, I believe that the novel is the most 
powerful form of art than painting uh, for several reasons, which, uh, you know, it would be something for another podcast. Uh, but I, I also believe um, partly because the word novel means new. Yeah. So each time you engage with the form, it should renew itself. If not, it will atrophy. It will, it will die at some point. And, and I see it. I said to myself, uh, you know, if I'm going to ever write a novel, it has to do, bring something new to the... To the and, and I'm not, uh, you know, talking about eschewing plot or, you know, what s- some postmodernist writers do. I don't believe that. I, I think that a novel primarily is storytelling, so you should tell a story. But there are a lot of things that you can do with form, and which was what I wanted to do uh, there, and I- even in The Fisherman and in the new novel that comes out next year. So the chi, as a narrator, breaks all boundaries of of. of of perspective. So it's a first person narrator which tells its own story. So the tree is making a case for itself. It wants to be able to come back, to reincarnate. If it's deemed, because it's telling the story before this jury or this body of unseen jury, if it's deemed to be maybe ineffective, then maybe it will be condemned to non existence. So while telling the story of Chinonso, it's trying to absorb itself. So it's a first-person narrator. It also addresses this jury from time to time. So it's a second-person narrator as, as well. At the same time, it's an omniscient narrator, a third-person narrator who is telling the story of a third-person, Chinonso, its, it's you know, subject. So in some ways, I, I, and I think this is one of the reasons why the novel you know, gained all, you know, whatever attention it gained, because it was a major risk that I took. Generally, you stick with one of those perspectives, but it does all three. So I I do want to say a word about this discussion of the novel. Aristotle writes that uh, poetry is more powerful than history. And uh, I've thought about that for many years. I'm a historian in part, and uh, I have an opinion. I'll ask you whether you agree with it. Nobody ever sees a war. Hmm. What historians do is they take everybody's recollection of the war, and they paint a picture that none of them could have painted, but now you're writing about a war. And you can write about an imaginary war. And that means you can arrange its parts better to exemplify the essence of war than any real instance could do. Is that what you're trying to do? No. Uh Hey, uh, I am, I, I, well, I'm, I'm writing about an actual war uh, for several reasons. So as I said, I, I grew up in the west uh, of Nigeria, and the first time that I ever went back to the east was uh, 1993. I remember very vividly because there had been a kind of a, a political crisis. So someone had won an election, uh, and then you know, for, for several years uh, growing up, Nigeria was led by actual dictators. You know, I, I, I used to laugh at my colleagues when they called the former U.S. President Donald Trump a dictator. And I would just laugh and I would say, you know, you don't want know what a dictator means. You know, this is a guy whom I am a nobody. I can just type, you know, something on Twitter and insult this guy. And it would not even, you know, cross my mind that I would not sleep in my bed tonight. But 
you know, growing up, uh, there were some soldiers, some military people who were ruling Nigeria. And we were living thousands of miles from, from the capital. And all the doors would be shut and my parents would still whisper when they want to criticize this guy, just because you don't know, your neighbor could say something. Anyway, so there was a, a, a guy who was the military president and his friend ran uh, you know, for, for, for an election and lost. And he got mad at the result and he annulled the election. So the winner was imprisoned. So everyone feared that you know, the country was going to dissolve into some kind of major conflict, but it didn't pan out. So my, my dad moved us back to the East as, a, as you know, where he's, he's from. And on getting there, I noticed something, you know, I, I was for some reason a very perceptive kid. I could, you know, observe things. And there were a lot of people who were disabled and mimed in one way or the other. And just a lot of people. And I hadn't seen such a, a, a number of, of, you know, blind, one hand, you know, one amputated limb. And I remember asking my mom, I'm like, why is, why is this boy or why is this woman with this kind of, uh, you know, in this kind of shape? And she said to me, tersely, it was the war. That was the answer. And <laughs> she didn't want to obviously be bothered to explain. So it would take me a long time, uh, but, but I never forget that, I forgot that. And, you know, as the years passed, I realized there, were, there would be some offhanded reference made to a particular war. That in 1967, seven years after independence, Nigeria actually dissolved into a war, you know, after the British left. And there were some people, some of them were Marxist. They just thought, you know what, there's too much corruption here. And, you know, uh, communism was happening in, in, in USSR at the time. And they thought, you know, we could split the country and have a confederation of some kind. Uh, like the USSR, and they de carried out a revolution, which went very badly, and you know was seen as one-sided because a lot of people from the north were killed, rather than from the east and other parts of the country. So there was a reprisal attack against the Igbos in the north. They were basically wiped out, you know, and so all the people from the east ran back to the east and declare themselves no longer part of Nigeria. So a war broke out. Uh, it was expected to last for a week or two, but it lasted for nearly three years. And the scale of that war was so massive that close to 1.5 million people died. It was a terrible thing. Um, so, so, you know, I, 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 and, and it affected my family very well. I have an uncle who nobody was unaccounted for. He never came back. You know, he joined the, the Biafran soldiers. My dad was only a week or two from joining. He was only 15, you know, when the war ended. So, so but I've, I've decided to write about it for a long time. I've, you know, it's the one book I've always wanted to write. But again, how do you tell the story in a new way, in a fresh way? And I found it, uh, again, going back to my mom, who hates to talk about the war, just like every other person who witnessed, you know, aspects of it. 
And I asked him, like, you know what? Whether you like it or not, I'm going to write this novel about the Biafran War. And she was like, okay, if you want to do that, go ahead. But remember something. Those who often tell the story of a thing like a war, like, you know, of, of conflict, are usually the leaving. But what is the purpose of war? It's basically to kill. So the product of war is death. But the dead never speak about it because they can't. So it's just like, this is why I don't like to talk about it. So if you are going to write a novel about a war, then make sure that all voices are heard. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is it. So the, the basic premise of the novel, The Road to the Country, is that the story is told by both the living and the dead. Oh, goodness. See, that's... see. You, you, while you disagree with my point about the nature of poetry and war, you just made it. No, I don't, I don't disagree, <laughs> but that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> no, but you did, because it's just like this, uh, you've taken something you've seen. Yes. You know, poetry is interesting. It always starts with particulars, something you see. But then the imagination of the poet turns it into yeah. a truth, Yes. A, a, an abstract abiding universal truth so what you've done is in orchestra of minorities and in this new book you've brought the dead back to life they get to tell their story that's amazing so and i have uh, in admiration and friendship i have adjured you to give it a happy ending <laughs> <laughs> i'll try <laughs> and, and you haven't quite made a commitment i noticed and, and you didn't quite there either but i repeat my adjuration <laughs> people need to be happy once in a while i would try it, uh, i promise you i, I would i would change the, the ending because of you <laughs> see that time don't believe it for a minute <laughs> it's uh so i want to explore a little bit because what's interesting to me is you open up an entirely different culture to us, to we Americans and to we in the West. And you're part of both. And uh, that's valuable, I think. I'm going to India in a few days, and you've encouraged me to go. And it's, I've been learning about it, and it's a different world. And I'm galvanized by the prospect of going. On the other hand, these books you write are popular in America and in the West. And... That must mean they speak of something that's common to us all. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, in indeed. It, it's, I, th I think there's a mysterious aspect to it, but what one does, even though there are these grand ideas, obviously, that, that one is trying to tackle cosmology, war, and all of that. But, you know, my story, I believe that fiction is really about relationships and in fact, connections and disconnections. You know, when I, I teach my cause, uh, creative writing cause here, I, it's, I, I tell the students that. It's a, it's a lot of things, but at the, at the granular level, it's, it's that. So you begin with that. I often tell them, uh, my students, that there are two types of fiction, or at least process of writing fiction. One is a work of fiction where plot is a function of character, and one where is the reverse. Character is a function of plot. I prefer the, the, the former because I think that plot usually is 
inconsequential when you're starting. You think about people. You, you, you know, there's a guy whom I know, uh, whom, uh, his name is uh, Raphael something. I can't remember his surname. But he makes the, the point that the, the, the first instantiation of an idea in, in, the, in any work of literature is actually place and character. So if you, if you think about a guy like Macbeth, he exists only within the universe that Shakespeare has placed him. If you, ex, you know, if you ex, export Macbeth out of that setting and put him in Hillsdale City, it's going to change him. It's not going to be the same character, you know. Yeah, yeah. So even a slight modulation of, of tone, of atmosphere, changes the character of, of the character and of the story. So I begin from character. So you, think, you, you come up with a person, you think to yourself, what is interesting about this guy who is in love, who has gone to Cyprus, sold everything he has because of the love he has for this woman? Or about this, this, this boy who has been given this prophecy that one of his brothers will kill him. And he's become insane because of that. So these are people. So I, I start to think about them, sleep with these people in my mind. And then you send the characters into the world. You know, you imbue them with the qualities that you want them to have. And plot emerges organically from that. It's like setting something into motion and just let it go. And, you, you know, so I don't really worry about plot. It emerges organically once you have a perfect image of character. So, uh, you know, I, I think I may have gone on a tangent, but, but I, no, no, I, I hope I'm answering your question. Very. Yes. If, so uh, let me first of all imagine Macbeth in Hillsdale. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting dark here early. I'm walking home. There are these three witches. Yes. They <laughs> now, appear out of nowhere. They uh, tell me that I could be the ruler of the universe. And the next thing you know... I kill somebody, and then I get killed by Macduff. Yeah. Except since I know the plot, I might not react that way. Yes. <laughs> it, uh, it's a uh, so fall one in. Yeah. I mean, he, here's the thing. I mean, in, in the Orchestra of Minorities, in Macbeth, for a time in both of those works of fiction, the protagonist is a wholly worthy character. And so you've... You subject them to things, and Shakespeare does, that show something else in them. What you're saying is it's not the plot that makes them. It's the plot that reveals them. Exactly. And that means you yes. saw that in them, in your mind, as Shakespeare did. Yes. And, and, and that, so, I, I, you know, I love that word. I, I, I remember there's a, an interview I gave some, in some newspaper sometime that came out uh, as the title fiction is rev as revelation something like that so yes it's, it's indeed revelation i you know and and i'm surprised by what i see when when what is revealed to me once i have taught up those characters and i and i think to go back to your question about universality that is what people connect with you know there's a and the fisherman you know so so the mysterious part is how you know, the fisherman, for instance, in his first year, sold more copies in Sweden than in the U.S., where I live. And, you know, sold 50,000 copies in China. 
And 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 then you 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 think about uh, you know the fact that these are characters who live in a small town, not even Lagos, an unknown place in Nigeria in the nineties. There's no connection to Chinese culture in any way. But but that's that's what they're connecting to. Really, it is the fact that everybody, even if you don't have a sibling, you understand what it means. You know to have one. You know you. That that sibling bond that that the, the the boys share is 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 in some ways universal. So, but how how one and it is, there's something uh, and that takes us back to the revelation. There's something that is revealed to them through the connection, through the relationships, you know, that the brothers have or, or that Chinonso has with his you know uh, with his girlfriend in in an occasional minorities that moves people. And and you know, so I just I just create this this character and these uh, situations, and and then the reader takes it from there. I think the Book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues His people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. I'm uh, tempted to a thought, which I will state and discard, see what you think. In the West... Life is artificial now. Now we have artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's going to happen at Hillsdale because we have an honor code, but artificial intelligence will write your paper for yes. you. Yes. Pretty good. Trouble is you'll never learn to write a paper. And so one of the reasons that I believe that we can learn from the, more, uh, the less developed places is because they're closer to nature. Mm. Now... I, th I think there's truth in that thought. On the other hand, I discard it. And the reason is lots and lots of people live in Nigeria. They don't all write novels like yours. In other words, there's also some kind of lightning that strikes. What do you think about that? So the question you're asking is, uh, how does one, is there such a thing as talent? The honest truth is, you know, I'll go back to, something that someone sent to me, the first agent I queried from out of New York, he said to me, this was 2011, I was very young, maybe 23, something like that. And I had sent him the first uh, draft of The Fisherman. And, you know, quote, I have come to understand, he said, that no matter how much you work at something, you either have it or you don't. It's just paraphrasing. And uh, you know, I think that there's some there's some truth to that. There is there's such a thing as 
as a talent, but I also wonder whether uh, one can walk oneself into that arena, really. Because, you know, I like to I, I like to think of myself as a guy who is obsessed with writing. It's, it's always been what I wanted to do. I mean, at first it wasn't, but uh, once I realized that you could actually create these universes, you could create these people, and they will be unique to you, and other people can actually read them and be persuaded. Because, you know, isn't it funny that, you know, every time people come to me and they said to me, you know what, I cried reading your novels, and, I'm, and I say to them, you know, uh, tongue-in-cheek, but it's written there that it is a work of fiction. These guys do not exist. These situations do not exist. So why are you crying about, why are you invested in people who do not exist? But that's because they've been persuaded <laughs> <laughs> to believe. So they've, you know, suspended disbelief and they've become invested and they've seen humanity in these non-human, human characters. So that's a paradox there. So in, in creating stuff like that, I, I feel like you need a lot of hard work. And, and, and so I don't know what the answer is. Maybe there's talent. I, 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 I think that there, to some extent there might be, because I've seen a lot of people who have strived, you know, and just didn't get there. But, you know, they, I, I'm not sure. I've been thinking about this in the context of India a lot. Mm -hmm. And I had to produce a statement. I'm going to be interviewed by the Times of India. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the biggest English language, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, what is your education philosophy? And I wrote that I don't have one, that, uh, but I know some great people who do, and I read them some Aristotle. And then I said, I have some observations, and one of them is this. Uh, India is very different from us, but in the end it has to be the same, doesn't it? We all being human. Yeah. And uh, And... If you see things, if you can understand things that abide, like the, the love and the tragedy in your novels, those are reflections of things that everybody experiences. But they have to, so the point is, yeah, it's good to look at it from a different point of view, mm -hmm. but the it stays the same, mm. surely. And uh, The essence of, of the thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, of, of course. I mean, as you said earlier, I, it's, it's very funny. So there's often a debate in, in Nigeria, but I, I think I suspect across African uh, post-colonial countries like India, at least I'm privy to the one in India, about is it a good thing that colonialism happened or not? And, you know, there's, there's always a... In fact, the English language is a question that people often ask me. Okay, you're African, you speak uh, two Nigerian languages. Why do you write in English as a, as a British language, as European? And it's, it's, it's always very funny to contemplate a question like that because why not? I mean, it's, if you think about it, so, okay, roughly about 50 million people speak Igbo. Let's say that I can write in it as proficiently as I can in, in the English language. But you think of the number of people who know English, who can access your work in English. It's like perhaps 2 billion people, something like that. So why write in f to 50 million people? It does not make sense. 
so you know it's a work of art that you you want to reach as much of a wide audience as possible because you're writing about humanity indeed you know again it has to be set within a constrained universe because we as human beings anyway we negotiate life by a kind of narrowing uh, in of things uh you know Aldous Huxley i think uh, called a certain framework through which we we view things i think restricting agents or something like that whereby you know because the impressions you get in any single second as a human being is like millions and millions and millions your mind cannot process it you go mad so you narrow things down until it's narrow enough that you can then focus on something so yes of course i i will write about a a particular small town in nigeria but that doesn't mean that i'm not talking about humanity as, as at large it is as you said the eat is the same in china as it is in akure is the same in hillsdale i know it because i've lived the experience so so those questions are you know mostly to me more of like ideological show off than what is logical and I, and i as a more of a pragmatic person rather than an ideological one of course i would write in english in fact if i didn't let's suppose i didn't know english i would strive to know that language that <laughs> can open the world up to me so some of those questions to me they are not even questions that should be asked but you know it's what i i i remember being asked this at a literary event in south africa and you know i got pilloried by certain you know ideological people who were there oh no you should talk about writing in african languages and i'm like even my dad would not be able to read that so what do i gain from writing in igbo a language that even my family members can i mean they can speak it but everybody goes to school in english so the stupidity of that just for for me to be able to claim oh you know what i'm resisting a particular thing to me it's not pragmatic in the classic works human beings are marked out by the fact that they use language it's an essentially human characteristic and and you know it's huxley that's very good you quote huxley we live in a restricted universe huxley invented a brave new world yes and you get to, we see our world we see worlds we see world in a different way but if it was simply unrecognizable it wouldn't mean anything to us so there there that's uh seems to me that uh i i wrote this thing for india about my education philosophy mostly to say i don't have one but i know some people who did and i quote a couple of classic authors but then i said remember it's very different i'm learning about india wow is it different on the other hand we're humans we must have something in common and i'm going there in part to see about them and in part to see what human looks like after i've seen them and uh and eat a lot of curries yeah eat a lot of curries <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm going to pay you an elaborate compliment now perfect opening first of all I I my my own I'm an old man now so I get to give accounts of things <laughs> that I don't even understand. But I don't think 
that you create, you personally, as much as you see. Because there are rules. Yes. And you have to obey them. So, for example, I urge people to read Orchestra of Minorities. In the middle, it is beautiful. The love story is just sublime. Poor boy, rich woman, both beautiful human beings. And you can't have the tragedy at the end without the beauty in the middle. And what you saw was a flaw, not a flaw in the young man, sure, but a flaw in the way of things. Yes. And it played out. You see, in other words, you showed us something real. And that's why we can see it. We can't see it as well as you can, except when you explain it to us. That's what I think. I think that you are. You have the eyes to see. And uh, that's, and you know, as they say, I want you to see more happy things. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is that I'm a very, I see, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm a very happy person, which is, which is weird. So that's the thing. You don't know where these things come from. The story just, you know, again, I, I, I think of these characters and they just end up in these very funny places. You know, you've haven't you've seen, <laughs> you noticed the wounded people, yes, the yes maimed yes, people, yes, and you could see, yeah, and you were observant and you dwelled on the meaning of that. I think that's where it comes from, like just the the the, the observation, and also because uh, you know, I again, I think before I started, and and which is, I in some sense, what I think maybe the difference between myself and some of my friends who were also writers, I, I think that I, I, I had a kind of a, a map of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do with the form on starting. And I defined for myself what I think an, a good book is, a bad novel is, and a great novel is. And, and 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 what I think is that a great novel ceases to be about something and becomes the thing. So there is a an act of transformation there. Not, but just to interrupt. Yeah. That means you didn't make it. It it means you saw it. Again, well, the, the the revelation. That's it. So, so I a, a couple of weeks ago, I I come came by this music, this song that my uh, my parents used to sing, but especially my granny. It's an ancient song of lamentation in in Igbo, and you know, it, I never knew that anyone could put it up on YouTube. And you know, by serendipity, I I saw it, and the moment I listened to that song. I was immediately sad. It's like Samuel Baba's adagio for for strings, I think it's called. So you cannot say that that's that is a song about sadness. It is sadness itself. So if you if you think of, you know, let's say that there's a nuclear explosion of some kind, and the world is no longer, and in fact, nobody who can understand what the woman is singing in the in the music, but there's a radio. 
playing that that tune you know because of the presence of that radio everything else is gone from 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 the world sadness will remain in the world mm-hmm. so for me that is what i conceptualized early on as as what a great work of art especially a novel should be it should become at some point the thing and i think that that is why that's how you're able to create that emotional impact you know that that becomes by accretion very strong by the end of the of the book and uh the reason i don't condemn you for crushing me <laughs> is that uh the crushing requires also elevation you have to see something lovely i think so i know you personally admire you very much and i think that that's what you're doing you can see the loveliness in the light of the dangers to it i mean you have to you have to see beauty you have to see light in darkness mm-hmm. if not it's, you know you and and the light only is possible because darkness exists anyway so if not light has no meaning so we're in the education business around here and uh it's a very inspiring business to be in and we believe that we should teach them what to live for and teach them what does that mean just like i think in the end you don't write those novels i think they exist in nature you can just see them we don't really teach anything they learn and they learn the things that are true hmm. better than things that are not and they have to figure that out we just help them well the point is they're young they need something to live for they they want that they're like plants they grow they want to grow and so they have to know that there are terrible things but they'd never understand them if they didn't know there were beautiful things so i encourage everyone to read your novels uh i want to promise our audience and compel you that uh when the new book comes out which will doubtless be a tour de force uh we will meet and talk about that book again thank you very much thank you very much mm. such a pleasure <laughs>